Our Old Testament reading this morning is taken from the prophet Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. The word of the Lord. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, and a mighty one who will save. He he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult you over you with loud singing. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Riley. You know, it's easy when uh, when we Christians here in the United States um, get together and talk about worship, and we're doing this series on worship. It's very easy to to let that discussion be about what songs we like or don't like, what kind of preaching we like or don't like, what kind of style we prefer, how much we have to sit down, how much we have to stand up. Uh, what type of accompaniment comes with various kinds of music, and it can become really a very selfish conversation because it's a conversation about what I want. And in a consumer culture like North American culture, we begin to view worship as a commodity and ourselves as the audience and the consumer, consuming worship units which we either are pleased with or displeased with. And, of course, as you open... The, 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 the scriptures, you realize very quickly that worship is not actually about pleasing us and that we aren't the audience, uh, that the audience is the Lord himself. What kind of worship pleases God? What is his design for New Testament worship? Worship in this era after the coming of Christ as we wait in anticipation for his return when he makes everything right and brings the suffering to a close. What is his will? We're going to look at a passage. We looked last week at, at, at Psalm 84, and we saw that worship is, is, is there to grow our longing for God, our hunger for God. It's not so much the overwhelming presence of God as it is uh, a suggestion of his presence that's there to, to spur us onward in this pilgrimage because a day will come when we will actually see the face of God and be made whole. Today we're going to look at another passage, this time in the New Testament, It's Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 13 to 21 as we try to see what is God's design for for worship together. This is uh, chapter 5 of Ephesians beginning in verse 13. Paul writes, But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, he writes, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, 
speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What do we see here? What we see here is that the voice of worship has a direction. Uh, God doesn't just call us to attend worship services. He calls us to worship Him. Worship has a direction, and that direction is God. It is a Godward action that we take. God says that, that, that worship under the Spirit's empowerment, you know, under the influence of the Spirit as opposed to under the influence of something else, He makes that contrast. He says it involves singing and making music or making melody to the Lord. That's a direction, to the Lord. He's the one we are all facing right now. God is the one who calls us to worship. That means to to, to seek the face of God in Christ, to delight in, in God and to seek Him above all else, to seek and ascribe to Him absolute and supreme worth. Worship has a direction, and that direction is a vertical one. When the Bible calls us to sing and make melody to the Lord, it is telling us that we are facing Him in our worship. This is what uh, at one point was called obeisance. Uh, You know, bowing before one and presenting ourselves before Him in order to honor Him. And in that sense, worship has an audience of one. Worship isn't a form of entertainment. We're not professionals up here standing up to offer you religious entertainment for your pleasure. Uh, You know, in our culture, we have to hear that. We have to understand that. We are not an audience. God is the audience. We are His congregation, presented before Him, to offer to Him the glory and honor and laud and praise that is worthy of His name as the God who created the earth and the heavens and is worthy of our praise. Because He is God. We are not. He is the Creator. We are the creatures. We are derived and dependent from him, on Him. He is the one who made us for His own glory and praise out of the overflow of His love that we might come and offer that love back to Him in an act of worship. Worship has a direction. That direction is God. And that direction we see described here as something that is heartfelt and fully engaged in worship to God. Interesting, you know, this uh, is actually not the church's original communion table. This is not even our communion table. Did you know that? We got this communion table from another church, Kingsland Memorial Presbyterian Church on Kingsland Avenue in Pagedale when it closed and merged into Memorial in 1975. Anybody know where Memorial's communion table is? Can you point to it? Anybody? It's back there on the back wall with the cross. It's a lot prettier. Why don't we pull it out and put it down here and use it? Anybody know? It's attached to the back wall. Well, that's weird. How did they do communion? How could you stand behind that? But for the first, you know, 50 years in this location, the pastor stood against that back wall facing the cross, facing the bread, facing the wine, facing, with his back to the congregation, speaking the words of institution into that wall. This was before PA systems. The sound would reflect off the wall back out to you. If you yell at a wall that's wood and kind of hollow, it bounces back, it reflects. But why would he do that? 
It's, it's going along with the old Roman rite of, of Western liturgy. It's not that his back is to the congregation. It's that the pastor and the congregation together are facing Jesus Christ, our Lord, together because we are facing him. Worship has a direction, and it's a direction that is heartfelt, fully engaged. Uh, You know, in a moment, I'm going to talk some about the emotions in worship, and in a moment, I'm going to give a big qualification and caution because some of you were born and bred and raised Presbyterians, and I'm going to talk to you first uh, and talk to you about emotions, and then I'm going to talk to those of you who are still recovering from your childhood charismatic experience. And so hold on. The first part is not for you. The first part is for the Presbyterians. Because when we look here, what we see is this call to heartfelt, emotionally fully engaged worship. Paul says, singing and making music in your heart to the Lord. Actually, probably more literal translation, singing and making music with your heart. Now, the heart isn't just the affections. It's the totality of your being. That, but that includes and particularly draws attention to an emotionally engaged passionate, heartfelt songs of redemption, being devoted to God, fully engaged in praising Him and finding satisfaction in the Father and His Son, singing and making music to God with your heart. It means the whole person pouring out your soul to your Savior. And for some of us, there are real cultural hurdles here because some of us were raised white and Presbyterian. I was not raised Presbyterian. I was raised white and atheist, and it's the same thing there. Because white culture, particularly its sort of northern and western European flavors, particularly like Scottish, English, Scottish American, Scotch-Irish American, English American culture, tends to be very phobic about emotions. You know, you look at other cultures, you compare us to other cultures, Arab men cry all the time. They rejoice all the time. You know, you see a Greek man, you talk to him, at some point he's going to get emotional. Uh, Latin America, same thing. Africa, same thing. Northern Western Europe, not so much. Scots are very good inventors, all cognitive. But that's where Presbyterianism comes from. And so oftentimes it's helpful for us to look outside our own tradition to see what does emotionally engaged worship look like uh, when it's not just cerebral and volitional, but it's, working on what what Jonathan Edwards called the religious affections. Uh, You know, you compare the difference between singing Amazing Grace in a white Presbyterian church and singing Amazing Grace in a black church. You all know what I'm talking about? Anybody know the difference? Okay. White Presbyterians. Amazing grace, how sweet a sound that saved a wretch like me. You can almost hear the metronome in the background. It's so metrical. And that's actually kind of how it's written. But uh, Presbyterians obeying the rules. Scots, imagine that, following the manual. Uh, You go into a black church. Now, there are varieties of black churches, but you go into a black church. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. What's the difference? Emotion, engaged, 
Musically, what's the difference? Well, you're not playing the notes, but that's okay. They're relative and human constructs. They're not objective. Uh, they're, they're not binding. But what's happening there is a Christian worship expression, a culture of Christian worship, has found uh, using syncopation uh, as a way to give voice to the heart as well as the mind in worship. What's syncopation? Syncopation is where you don't do everything on the meter. You add lots of dots to the little notes, and you make some notes longer and other notes smaller, and, and that variety then shifts the emphasis from the downbeat to the offbeat so that it's like not amazing grace. How It's no, amazing grace. Then you get rhythm. Syncopation, rhythm, offbeat emphasized. You say, Greg, that syncopation is cheesy. That's a white culture talking. That's not the language of the heart. God's desire is that we would worship with the heart. You know, you say, take another hymn. You know, what can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Verses. What can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I had four years of violin in elementary school. That's good. (laughs) But looking at non-white, non-Scottish expressions of Christian worship, we can see how other Christians have, have become attuned to the heart the emotion as well as the mind and the soul making music with our hearts to the Lord. Learn from the black church on this one, friends. Learn from the global church on this one. It's not just that strategically it will help you be better contextualized for a racially diverse mission field like St. Louis, though it will help you do that. It's that it will be good for your soul to worship God because you need it. Singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. Now, I said there was going to be a qualification here. Because some of you have a different background where it was all about chasing an emotional experience and basing your assurance of salvation on that feeling that you were hooked on. Because until you got that feeling in worship, you didn't really believe that God loved you and cared for you. And if you're coming from that background, then I'm going to offer the caution that all of us often need to hear to be careful about chasing after the feeling in worship. It has to be to the Lord. And it can be a subtle shift from worshiping the Lord with our hearts to worshiping an emotional experience that I rely upon to make me think I'm, that I'm tight with God. And yet, once you start seeking that emotional experience first, then you're going to trust in that emotional experience instead of Jesus. And it'll leave you switching churches every few years, switching worship styles every few years, maybe changing religions in order to get that feeling that you associate with the closeness of God. Instead of looking outside yourself to Christ crucified for you, because looking outside yourself to the one who loves you, who delights in you, who died for you, and who lives and reigns now on your behalf, friends, that's what will move your heart. In God's timing, and in God's way, as you seek and savor him. Don't reverse the train. I remember as a a kid in my college ministry, after becoming a Christian, there was always that train illustration. Did any of you know the faith fact feeling, you know, caboose illustration? Anybody hear that one? 
Okay, there's a diagram. I'm not going to post it on the wall. Um, But, you know, what makes a train go is its engine. And back before electric engines, what made, you know, the engine go was, was its coal car. And at the end of the train, you saw a little red what? Caboose. Now, the engine that drives worship is the Lord. He is the only one, the objective fact of what he has done, the fact that Christ is the Son of God, the fact that Christ died for your sins, the fact that Christ has set you free and calls you to trust me, to trust him. That's the fact. That's what drives the Christian life. That's what drives Christian worship. That's why we're here this morning. It's not about our emotions. Now, what actually drives that in our life is the coal car, which is our faith. Our faith looking outside ourselves to the objective fact of Jesus Christ, his death, resurrection, and the fact that he's coming again to make everything right. And our, our coal car, our faith in that, is what drives it and gives it power in our lives. And the caboose is the emotions that can follow as you learn to love God and respond in faith to his sacrifice on your behalf. Now, the caboose is really helpful to have. But there are times when you're not going to feel it. But if you try to drive the train with the caboose, then when things get bad, you are going to end up at the bottom of a hill with no power and no steam and no way to get back up the hill because you're looking inside yourself instead of outside to Jesus. Sing, make music with the heart, but to the Lord, hoping not in your emotional experience, but in the one who your emotions are set on, finding their satisfaction in making music with the heart to the Lord. I said the the voice of worship has a direction. That direction is vertical. But now there's more because there's also a second direction in worship. Uh, The voice of worship has a second direction. That direction is what we see in verse 19. Did you notice? Paul says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music in your heart to the Lord. Did you get that? Speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That, that means, yes, engaged in worship, but speaking not just to God, not just vertically, but horizontally to one another, whether it's a tall steeple church with a hymnal or a warehouse church with a projection system or some weird hybrid thereof. You know, style isn't the thing here, but hearing one another's voices in worship. That's a part of what it means to live in the Holy Spirit's power, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, because God wants the 80-year-old in the pew next to you and the 7-year-old in the pew behind you to hear your voice singing to God, your Savior, and singing to one another. It was always the case in the Old Testament All of these psalms, so many of them were antiphonal, where there'd be a call and response. Even Psalm 136, where where the priest would sing one line and the congregation would respond, his steadfast love endures forever. And they would respond again and again, hearing each other praising God. It's the litany prayers in Acts 2, when they were devoted to the prayers, those, those litany prayers where the people respond. Paul in 1 Corinthians saying, don't speak. Don't pray unless everybody understands it, because otherwise they won't know how to say the amen. 
because it's so integral to New Testament worship that we hear each other and that we be vocalizing our agreement with one another as a community, as a people. The author to Hebrews says the very purpose of our worship meetings says don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another because that's why we're here that your voice could encourage each other. It means supporting the congregation's voice. It's why sometimes we pull back some of the instrumentation to hear each other singing a cappella so that we could hear each other praising our God, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's why we look up to worship, because when you're looking at the floor, they're not hearing your voice. All of this is driven by a theological concern. One of the things I really love about you as a congregation is, is that you men, and I mean that in a gendered sense, you men sing to Jesus. Um, you know, you're not so proud or so insecure of yourselves that you refuse to sing. And, and I can't really describe what the powerful experience I have very often before the sermon, sitting in the front pew, and usually while you're all standing, I'm usually sitting because I'm conserving my energy uh, so that I could actually get through a sermon and then, and then the Lord's Supper. Uh, and so as I'm sitting there, usually not singing myself because I'm preserving my voice, and when I sing, I tend to lose my voice. It'll probably go out in the next, next main point at some point. But, uh, you know, as I'm sitting there and I hear my brothers praising God, I hear those male voices worshiping God, and it just touches me in such a way because my brothers love Jesus. My brothers are not so proud and so insecure and so arrogant and so insecure of their masculinity that they can't praise the name of Jesus. Amen. I need an amen sign. And, uh, you know, it's a whole other layer of manhood and masculinity to be able to do that. And yet there's this horizontal thing going on there, this second direction of worship. As I hear you guys singing to Jesus with such passion, my heart just begins to soar. You've affected me. No, you, you've affected me, if that's a word. You've caused affect or affection to flood my heart for all of you and for our God as I hear you singing with passion to him who reigns in heaven. That's, that's a freedom that comes from hearing one another sing of beauty. Yeah, in the film Shawshank Redemption, uh, uh, Red Redding, played by Morgan Freeman, you know, he, he tells the story of, of Andy Dufresne, played by Tim Robbins, who's a young, successful banker who's wrongly convicted of murdering his wife in 1947. And so he's sentenced to two consecutive life terms at Shawshank Prison. And you know, there's that, that one point in the film when Dufresne is given the task of sorting through a bunch of donations. And among the donations is a box of, of LPs, of vinyl records. And he pulls one out, and it's an Italian opera. And he starts to play it, and the guard outside says, what are you doing? You can't do that. And so he locks the door, unlocks himself inside, and then he turns on the PA system through the entire prison. The yard, the, the, the prison hospital, the cells, the hallways. And he plays this music full blast through the speakers. And everyone in the entire prison is listening to this Italian opera. And as everyone hears it, they all put down what they're doing and just stand there and listen. And at this point, Morgan Freeman's character comments. says, I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. 
I'd like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words. It makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anyone in that place dared to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man in Shawshank was free. Friends, that freedom is what your brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, crave for. And God has given you the ability to grant them that freedom as they hear you singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music in your heart to the Lord. Even non-Christians are called into this worship. As you look at the Psalter and so many hymns, are saying, clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. Shout to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. That vertical direction, worship is of God. That horizontal direction where it's together is we're encouraging one another by worshiping the Lord together in song. Yes, it has a a direction that's vertical. Yes, it has a second direction that's horizontal to one another. But we hear another voice in worship as well. This text speaks of the fullness of the Holy Spirit in this era of the Messiah and what that would have meant to those early Jewish followers of Jesus who were reading this and other letters in the New Testament was that age that the prophets spoke of. And there was one prophet, Zephaniah, who spoke of this coming age of the Spirit in which we now live as an age of singing, an age of song. And in Zephaniah 3, he described it that way. It's what this world is all about. But as he describes it, as Riley read it earlier, there is a voice in that that is singing over top of us. It's what Zephaniah tells us in this messianic age, this age of the Spirit, that there's this other voice in our worship that we cannot necessarily hear. It's a voice in, with, and under us, surrounding us, speaking over us, calling out to us to join in his song. It's the voice of your God singing songs of joy over you. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. It's a God who's delighting in you right now. There's a song I, I sing to my cat, Leela. Um, I don't sing socks a song. I think it goes back to when Leela was an only kitten. And... Uh, and it's different every time, but I sing to her, and it basically goes, that's my Leela, she's so fill-in-the-blank, and fill-in-the-blank, my baby girl. And so it can be like, you know, as I'm petting her, you know, that's my Leela, she's so feline and ferocious, my baby girl. That's my Leela, she's so striped and so furry, my baby girl. Yeah, I can talk about her green eyes, I can talk about her paws, she has four of them, you know, all kinds of stuff. But, you know, what the point is... Greg, you're really lonely. No. (laughs) The point is, if a sinful, goofy guy can take such delight in a cat, which is a completely different species, that he sings over her with gladness, then why would you think that God your Father has less joy and less love for you? He is the one who exults over you with loud singing. 
you know, this sound and all of creation of songs surrounding us as a symphony, the electron shell of a carbon atom producing the same harmonic scale as a Gregorian chant, whale songs traveling thousands of miles across the Pacific, unknown to us, meadowlarks having a range of 300 notes, earthworms making faint staccato sounds, a single hydrogen atom emitting over 100 frequencies, more so than a Steinway, which only has 88. In his book, The Lives of a Cell, Notes of a Biology Watcher, science writer Lewis Thomas sums it up this way. He said, if we had better hearing and could discern all of the sound of the seabirds, the rhythmic drumming of the schools of mollusks, the distant harmonics of flies hanging over meadows in the sun, the combined sound would lift us off our feet. The whole cosmos is singing a song of praise, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music with their hearts to God, and there above it all is the voice of your God as a descant, crying out praise and delight and joy as he meditates upon you whom he loves. Wherever the followers of Jesus have gone, they've gone there with singing. It's the basic difference between Christianity and Islam in terms of worship, is that in Christianity, worship is always corporate. It's not individual, and it's always with song when it's almost never with song in Islam. What's the difference that could cause us to burst into song? Both religions say God is one. Both religions say he is holy. Both religions say he is merciful and compassionate. Both religions call us to walk on his way, turning not to the right nor to the left. Both of them so similar and yet so radically different because one of them encourages us to burst forth in song of joy and thanks and praise and love to God. Friends, you can never sing to someone who terrifies you. You only sing to one who's got your back, who loves you completely, one who went to the cross to purchase your salvation, to defeat Satan for you, and to secure your seat in eternal life and the favor of God. That's the only thing that enables Christians to burst into song. It's because we have Jesus. I recently read an account of a Syrian... Kurd, Kurdish man now living in Lebanon. We'll call him Muhammad. And he writes this. He says, My parents were Kurdish. My mother from a Muslim background, my father Zoroastrian. I didn't grow up religious. In fact, I hated God. I hated God because of what he did to our people. Saddam Hussein gassed our people and killed them by the thousands. The Turks destroyed 5,000 Kurdish villages and burned people inside of them. The Syrians in my own country banned our language and even banned us from taking Kurdish names. What kind of God would do that? And the God of Islam, the God I was raised with, was a God who spoke in Arabic. And the Arabs are the ones who banned my culture and my language. I went off to obligatory military service and there were a lot of folks who didn't make it. They, they gave up. They committed suicide. And during that period, I told God just how unjust he was why he would make me to suffer all of this. And while I was there suffering, my own father passed away and I could not be there for him. God would not even allow me to say goodbye. After my service, I went home and found that my mother and my sisters had become fundamentalist Muslims, religious extremists. They prayed constantly. It was weird. I wasn't used to that. And I, too, began to believe in Islam. And yet as I began to become more and more zealous and fundamentalist in my own religion... 
I found myself tripping up and falling deeper and deeper into sin. And it left me hopeless and despairing. I took a job with a painter who was in a Christian part of Syria. And I started to ask him questions about his religion. I asked him for a Bible. He said, the Bible is worthless. I asked him if I could go to church with him. He said, church is a waste of time. Finally, I quit my job. I said I couldn't go on any murder. He, he asked me more questions. I told him how depressed I was. He said, why don't you work for my son? So I started working for his son. And his son was a different kind of man, a different kind of Christian. His son would listen to this music on, on the radio that was all about somebody named Jesus. And I, I, even though Jesus is a prophet in Islam, I had never really heard about Jesus or Isa. So I asked him what it's about. Who is this? Is this Jesus God or is he someone next to God? I couldn't understand. Is he Allah or is he not? And, and, and he wouldn't really answer all my questions. All he kept doing is telling me that God loves you, that Allah loves you. It's strange. I didn't understand it. Kurds had suffered so much. How can you tell me that Allah loves me? But I went with him to a youth meeting at his church one Friday night. You can imagine how strange it must have seemed, so different from the mosque. Instead of the hushed silence of the mosque, people were greeting each other warmly. They were embracing one another. They were talking with one another. You could hear their voices were all over the place, all of these voices of this congregation. They were asking questions about one another. You can almost picture a woman without hijab, without a veil, pulling another woman toward her, embracing her in a hug, praying over her. All you could imagine is just... How awkward this must have been when everyone in the room then began singing to Allah and to Isa, to God and to Jesus. All of them singing out loud, their voices singing with some sort of feeling or emotion or what was it, perhaps some sort of personal loyalty or gratitude or, or devotion. Muslims don't do that, not in the mosque. These followers of Jesus were singing songs together from their heart to their Savior who they love. He continues at that first Friday night youth meeting inside that church in Syria. These followers of Jesus sang this hymn there. And the words stuck in my mind. They translate into English as, I come close to you, my God, and I rest, and you welcome me with joy. You can imagine Muhammad's world turning upside down. He explains, I used to hate God. And when I went to his house, he welcomed me with joy? All of these Christians singing together, God was calling me to Jesus right there and then through their song. I felt from that time onward, God was calling me into this welcome of Jesus, into this rest, into his son. After six months, I went to a conference and I came back ready to be baptized, ready to follow Jesus. Muhammad spent the next six years plant, you know, getting theological training and then he planted 50 house churches the smallest church had only seven members. The really large megachurch had 18 members. But 50 churches throughout Syria. And it all started because he heard the Christians singing. Singing to their Savior God. Singing with love and joy and devotion as a community committed to their God who is committed to them. Committed to one another. To speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music in their heart to the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks, and we praise you, and we worship you 
that Christ our Savior has died for us, that our sins are now forgiven, and you now speak and sing and dance over top of us and ask us to then join in that dance of creation, that song of creation, the song that you have in love and delight and joy for us, your people. Father, we consecrate to you now the elements on this table, this bread and this wine, that you administer the gospel to us as a people, that we might be changed and transformed and might worship you rightly. We pray it in the name of Christ Jesus who died for us. Amen.